Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically very friendly tribal animals. We like to hang out together, do things together, from coffee clutches, sewing circles, watching football, playing baseball, you name it, eating. We love to eat together. We love to do all kinds of things together. And we do them gently most often. But at the very same time, it's really important that we recognize and stay aware of the fact that a very small, very, very small percentage of us, but a powerful percentage, are very different from the vast majority of us. They're not necessarily friendly and cooperative, democratic, or interested in republic ideals. They are more interested in power over us. They're the kind of people who would rather have subjects than citizens. They're the kind of people who are in favor of such things as dictatorships. We all know that our democracy and our republic, which we thought was a given, at least I did when I was growing up, is not a given. It's something we have to fight for at times, be aware of at all times. We could have lost it on the 6th of January during that uprising, but fortunately we didn't. This is a call for all of us to stay politically aware, even in the hardest of times when so many of us are concerned about basics such as rent and food, we still must be politically aware to maintain our democracy and our republic. In the words of my hero Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm pleased to have with us Randy Henkin. He's a business strategist for something called Prisms AI. Sounds like artificial intelligence, doesn't it? We'll hear more. Recently, he's been a political consultant for decriminalized sex work. You know that we had a program on decriminalize the organization decriminalized sex work only recently, which you can listen to in the archives. Hopefully, we're going to hear more today. Randy was also co-founder of Blue Frontiers, an organization that aimed to build a floating city in French Polynesia. He also served as the executive director of the Seasetting Institute, Seasteading, where people live in cities on the sea. Maybe we'll have time to hear more about that. I know our producer, Charlie Deist, has been involved with Seasteading as well. Randy was also chairman of the Board of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and he was the communications director for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, which is known to all of you listeners, or at least most of you. He organized the first MAPS psychedelic conference. It was a psychedelic science conference in San Jose in 2011. I happened to be there at the time, gathering information for some radio programs on the conference. He also was associate director for the Ibogaine Association based in Mexico. I mean, and he's an athlete. I mean, this guy does a lot of interesting things. I'm so happy you're here. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Randy. Uh, thanks, Richard. I guess that's uh, my middle age showing that I have such a long resume and things to talk about now. There are two things I'd like to be sure that we talk about today. 
you're welcome to pick either one. One of them, of course, is the decriminalizing of sex work. It's an organization you belong to. And the other is a story that I think you're going to be willing to talk about regarding your personal use of psychedelics and the healing that occurred from it. Well, let's start with the latter. Okay, let's start with the latter. Take it from the top. I guess first I just want to open and say that, you know, I was a uh, heroin user and a cocaine user, you know, to be in the years to like 1998 to 2001, something like that. It's about four years of having a bad addiction. And at the time, you know, none of my friends died from heroin. You know, they had bad times and I didn't know people who died from overdose. And I feel really fortunate to have had that experience at a time before fentanyl hit the markets or hit the streets. And I know you agree with me on this, that the reason we have fentanyl now is because of terrible drug policy in the United States and around the world. And the fact that we outlawed these drugs is what made them more potent and more dangerous. And that's why we're losing 110,000 Americans a year to opioid overdose. Yes, I very much agree with you. Yeah, and, and now that we're, you know, it's a, it's a big topic. We're, we're hearing the same drummers march with the same beat about trying to stop fentanyl using the same stupid tools of militarization and, you know, jails and police. And there's lip service paid to harm reduction and to addiction treatment. And I wish that we would have learned our lesson. I mean, I'm glad we're in an era now where we've done smart things like decriminalize psychedelics and Oregon and Colorado and marijuana is legal in you know, half the country or more. But we need to start treating cocaine and heroin and methamphetamine and other drugs with the same consciousness and know that prohibition never works. So I just wanted to start by getting that out. And I can tell here, you here, my story. Prohibition doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. So, um, yeah, today I'm talking to you from uh, my, my home in Snowmass Village, Colorado, where I this morning had an amazing day skiing. Uh, and then I got back to work on Prism's AI, which we can talk about later on. But uh, I'm here you know, 25 years after I kicked uh, kicked heroin. And I'm also here where I started heroin. It was here 25 years ago that I was introduced to heroin. I was working in the service industry. I had a girlfriend that liked heroin. And I was a, a young man that you know liked to have fun. And I uh, you know, am adventurous and I'm not scared of trying new things. So um, I got in over my head with um you know, using cocaine and heroin here. And uh, it became all, you know, all encompassing. I had a hole in my heart that I was trying to fill uh, using those drugs. And, uh, and, and I couldn't do both. I couldn't be a, a snowboard bum and a uh, heroin user or heroin addict at the same time. I, you know, ended up getting fired from my jobs and having to leave Snowmass. I went down to CU to, to Boulder. I went to school there. I dropped out of school because, you know, I could, you know, while I could get good grades, I couldn't be successful in life while uh, trying to maintain a heroin habit. Um, and then I had another few years of uh, you know, very tumultuousness where I uh, was, What a uh, second. Let me, let, let me interrupt you. Sure. Uh, one question there. What was there about using heroin that made it difficult for you to maintain uh, otherwise a relatively uh, normal life? I mean, heroin's a very powerful sedative. And I think that heroin's a nice tool to use um, when you're trying to escape yourself. So I think that at that time in my life, I didn't like myself enough, uh, and I was into being numbed out uh, using heroin. And I was also into the excitement, the rush of, of cocaine. So, you know, the combination of them, like back in the day, you would call it like the Jim Belushi or something, you know, speedballing. 
Uh, so you would have a, some, some real excitement, exciting to go and score dope. And it was exciting to shoot dope. And then it was nice to, uh, disconnect from reality and, and not out. Um, and living in a cycle of that where it's, it's a daily thing. It's a daily event. It costs money. And, uh, I know that there are stories of very successful people who use heroin, but I think for the average person is into that lifestyle, it's pretty difficult to maintain it. Um, and it also just wasn't who I wanted to be. So the economics is an important factor in the direction the person goes, because as you point out, those who can afford heroin, who don't have to get into, quote, the life, or don't have to get into stealing, or don't have to deal with uh, dangerous dealers, but who can just order it and have it delivered to their homes, as like a pizza, uh, the heroin itself, when you use a clean needle or smoke it carefully, is not dangerous to one's health. It's everything around the heroin that is so uh, really very dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely adulterated heroin is much more in the black market, and what you have to do to get your heroin is much more dangerous than the heroin itself. And I wish we could live in an era where, I mean, obviously it's, it's a funny story that heroin was, you know, a first marketed as a way to not be addicted to morphine. Um, and obviously morphine is less dangerous than heroin, but... Um, Gosh, if we could live in a time where opium was available rather than fentanyl, uh, I think that we would have a lot less dead people um, and a lot, a lot less suffering. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, I think that there's people who have real traumas and real life issues that probably will be on opiates all, their whole life, and that's a good thing for them. It's the way they should be medicated. And there's others of us that. Um, Opiates aren't the best choice. In fact, I haven't used opiates except for maybe once uh, since I kicked heroin when I had, I had a broken rib a decade ago, and it hurt enough that I took some some opiates. So how'd um, you finally kick, Randy? So eventually, yeah, I ended up uh, doing ibogaine. So uh, this is back early days of the internet, and uh, you know the way you know there was forums talking about ibogaine. There was maybe two providers on the internet at the time. One was in Florida, one was in Mexico, and um, you know I made. Uh, made contact with them. I was living in San Diego by then. Uh, I, I was on a methadone program and, and relapsing on heroin and cocaine. And uh, I managed to, um, for affordable price, go down to Mexico City and do ibogaine at a house with a couple of uh, Mexican doctors. Um, and uh, we can talk more about the ibogaine experience momentarily. But uh, yeah, that was in 2001. It's momentarily. Tell us about the ibogaine experience. Sure. Um, uh, it, it's hard. You know, and I, I I don't have any plans to ever do it again. And I, you know, don't necessarily advocate for other people to do it, but it worked really well for me. And for, for people who don't know much about ibogaine, I'll give some some details about it. Ibogaine is the derivative of a drug coming from the iboga plant. So from the root of the iboga plant, it's an African sacrament. And way back in the 60s, uh, another heroin user discovered that when he tried ibogaine, uh, he was able to get off of heroin and did have a without having withdrawal symptoms and felt that um, you know no urge to use heroin thereafter. So Howard Lotsoff was his name. Uh, he and his friends like Dana Beal, one of the yippies, uh, worked very hard to introduce ibogaine into the culture to help heroin addicts uh, get off of heroin. And and now it's quite popular. I mean, there, it's not available legally in the United States. I guess it's now decriminalized here in Colorado. Uh, but there's uh, definitely lots of treatment centers uh, throughout Central America and maybe down into South America and across Europe and in Australia. 
Um, I'm not really up to speed on the different clinics and the current operations. I will say that um, it's not a fun, pleasant experience. Uh, it it uh, it kicked my ass. I was uh, you know down for about 24 hours. The experience was very long lasting. The first third of it uh, causes this ataxia where you physically can't move. Like maybe with somebody holding your hand, you can get to a bathroom, but you're not going to get up and walk around. It's loud. It's cacophonous. Like your ears are screaming at you. And and during that time, um, my experience is what when the one I was, uh, you know, seeing these, uh, you know, uh, ancient gods come and howl at me and taunt me. And two, I was seeing these steel images of my childhood. And uh, I would watch them come from afar and float over my shoulder. And then another one would come and float over my shoulder. And there's a lot of discussion that Iboga uh, is reactive in the long-term memory. And that um, that long-term memory reactions can help people overcome traumas. So I found that in the months after using the Ibogaine, uh, issues that I had from my childhood that I was uh, probably suppressing and you know, using the heroin, um, I was now facing. And I brought them up and I dealt with them and was able to uh, you know, move into adulthood um, you know, there, thereafter. Um, so when you when you say you brought them up and when you say you brought them up and dealt with them, did you have the privilege of a of a a, a, a therapist or a coach or a guide or someone who could help you integrate those very uh, challenging experiences? Um, I wish, uh, not really at the time, you know, the, the way it was working in early days of Ibogaine, like uh, I took the Ibogaine, I went home three days later. Um, I, you know, I had a girlfriend, I had a best friend. I started going to smart recovery meetings. So at those meetings, I learned things about cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which I instituted myself. Um, I did eventually get to work with a cognitive behavioral therapist, uh, which was really helpful. But I didn't have one of those integration coaches that are so common now in psychotherapy. Uh-huh. 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 But you see the value of that whole subspecialty uh, that is uh, being established now, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a great uh, – and I know so many people that are involved in it. Um, I'm glad that that's where we're going. And I hope that uh, – yeah. I hope we can find a way to make uh, psychedelic therapy as affordable and plentiful for the people that need it while balancing – you know, the incentives of not pushing them on people who don't need it or who, you know, or were overstating their, their, you know, like I'm worried a bit about the hype. Randy, I've read statistics indicating that at least 26 million people in the United States have tried LSD. Uh, I, I, I can't validate those numbers, but I've also read statistics that tens of millions of people have tried MDMA. And we don't know how many people at this point have tried ayahuasca, but you know that it's gaining in popularity around the country. And I'm wondering if it's time and if there's a place for a psychedelic freedom party to marshal the people who have all had psychedelic experiences into a voting block. Because a voting block of 10 or 20 or 30 million people can sway a national election and could certainly sway local elections. And since so many blocks of various kinds of people have small lobby groups, I'm raising the question and I'm interested in your opinion as a man who is an organizer and a leader. Do you think the time is right 
for such a party or is it still too early? Well, it's a really interesting idea. I mean, I think that if we look at Colorado and we know that we decriminalized nature, we decriminalized mushrooms, uh, 5-MODMT, DMT, ibogaine, um, and I'm missing one. Uh, and it, you know, passed, you know, by some thousands of votes against the no votes. It, it, it beat alcohol. Like we, we, we did it vote to allow people to have alcohol delivered to their house. Um, but we did vote to decriminalize psychedelics. So clearly at least, you know, the, whatever millions of people here are in Colorado, uh, we're part of that voting block. Um, and I think that, uh, you can see from some of the great work that maps is doing at the lobbying level, uh, who they're bringing together in these coalitions. Uh, we, we see, uh, people that don't get along on other things, uh, on both right and left, you know, championing MDMA therapy for, for veterans, for instance. So yes. I, I do think this is a, um, an issue that can be pulled separated from our typical left, right uh, paradigm. And, um, yeah, I, I think I'm surprised I'm, I'm dumbfounded that we haven't legalized marijuana at the federal level. And I, you know, I'm, I'm bullish that your idea is right. So maybe, um, there's something that will happen with that. I mean, we, if we look at how big the decrim nature movement is now across cities, and that's where these things come up. Cause you can't expect the politicians to do it first, right? You have to, it's always the citizens that lead these things because the politicians are too scared and then the citizens push them and then the politicians now think that marijuana is a winning issue. So now they will vote for it, right? I live in a little uh, tiny former fishing and logging village on the west coast of Northern California in a county called Mendocino County and the city is called Fort Bragg, population about 7,500 uh, the reason I'm dressed so formally right now is that I made a presentation just uh, less than an hour ago to the Fort Bragg City Council proposing that they agenda uh, decriminalizing vegetables that grow from the ground and that they join Denver, Oakland, San Francisco, and Oregon and become the fifth uh, location in the United States to decrim. So right. I thought I'd test, I'd test the water, you know, in a small town in rural. And I had a three-minute presentation, which is what's allowed. And then I le I left. And as I was leaving with my beautiful wife, Jolie, the city manager came after me. And she said, I just want to tell you, Dr. Miller, I've tried psychedelic therapy and I'm very much in favor of it. So I was like, wow, you know, t maybe the times are, are changing and maybe there is room to to put this kind of political party together. The times are changing for sure. I mean, I having been uh, in Maps's headquarters in from 2008 to 2011, when we were uh, four people above a garage in Ben Lomond, California, to today, like it, it was still a taboo topic. Right? I remember like having a, uh, a reporter come in from Europe. I'm like, oh, you should do a report on on Maps, and she's like, well, why? That sounds boring. And now the reporters are beating down the door to get stories with Maps, right? Right. I'm running this uh, these adventures before and after Maps' conference on behalf of them to help them raise some money. And it, I read about that. Yeah. In one of them, I've rented this big mansion. It's going to be a high-end thing for uh, for donor-class people to get together and have some good time raising money for Maps. And when I'm talking to the owners of the mansion, they ask me what it's all about. And there's part of me that's in my heart that I'm a little worried. I'm a little worried to tell them that it's for the Psychedelic Science Conference. Uh, and then I'm like, I just have to say it. And I mean, and then I re as I'm saying, I'm real. This is 
taboo anymore. We already decriminalized this. It's on every single news show. You know, you it was on John Oliver the other night. Like it's just is not a taboo anymore. So I think that you're probably right. Like um, as long as I'm, I'm a little worried about backlash. I'm worried about oh, things will go wrong for some people, and the news is going to catch on to those. You know, it's going to clamp onto those stories and try to scare people. But um, one, it's great. I mean, your generation was the uh, the leaders of this. It's, and uh, and now you guys have the our voting block too, right? Yes, and the in terms of the negative backlash at this point, there's something in science called anecdotal data. Anecdotal data is when you have numbers of of cases that are so huge that you have to listen to them, even though there wasn't double blind testing going on. And we're now at a place with psychedelics, as I said earlier, we have tens of millions of people. And what we know, Randy, is our our emergency rooms are not full of people who have had bad experiences with LSD, with Ibogaine, with psilocybin, with MDMA. Otherwise, we'd know it because the, the emergency room data get on national news right away. Somebody dies at a basketball game from cocaine, it makes national news. We, we know that when that basketball player died uh, some years ago, right? The limb bias incident. Yeah, but but the the anecdotal data on these psychedelic medicines is overwhelmingly positive. So not to say we don't have tragic situations of people doing silly things to themselves, but they're very, really statistically extremely few, and we all know that. That's a given. Yeah, I wager that the amount of people in America who have done MDMA at this point is way higher than that. Like, I mean, I was talking to people like you know, people, everybody in my college. I don't know anybody in my college who didn't do MDMA, right? So <laughs> maybe it's where I'm from in the country. I've been out in California. Now I'm in Colorado and you know, someplace else in the country that wouldn't be so normal. But um, I mean, you can see it in the humor on TV when people make jokes about things. I watched Chelsea Handler's act last night and she's talking about doing, you know, mushrooms and MDMA and in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and the audience is eating it up. So I think that it's, it's way yeah. more common than we that we give credit to. Yes. What really I think did it, Randy, was the Vietnam War, because young men came back to every little hamlet in the country, and they brought drugs back from Vietnam with them. Not every single soldier did, but enough of them did, so that drugs, marijuana, for example, spread around the entire country after the Vietnam War. So even those places that used to look down their nose on it had local people, farmers and and mechanics and regular people using marijuana because they used marijuana. And as far as heroin goes, you know, we had a substantial number of vets come home from Vietnam uh, addicted to heroin. By the way, the data on that are very interesting because it, it appears that at least 50% of the vets who use heroin in, in, in Vietnam when they came home just stopped cold. Yeah. And then, that, of course, that, there were a number. That's story that, uh, you know, they were in a terrible place when they were using heroin. They got home to a nice place. They didn't want to use heroin anymore. Right? That's right. And That's um, right. You know, it's also uh, it helps bust the myth. They say, you know, heroin, you do it once, you're going to be addicted forever. Nine out of 10 people who do heroin don't become addicted to it, right? It's like- it's, The it's public doesn't realize that because yeah. such a smear campaign has gone on by the media, of course. Yeah, in fact, I, I saw just another reminder the other night. There was something in an old movie- where the guy says, oh, this stuff, cocaine, use it once and you're totally addicted. Yeah, sure, sure. 
That's like telling an alcoholic the first time you ever drink alcohol in your life, try drinking a whole fifth. <laughs> right. It, it, you work your way up, as you well know. Yeah. So, is there anything else you want to? Is there anything else you want to mention about your story relating, you know, your addiction and ibogaine before we move on? Yeah, I, I well, um, in terms of the ibogaine, um, on the positive side, I want to see. Like, I remember I came home and you know I wasn't great. Like, you know, I, I didn't feel like like I didn't have the worst of the withdrawal symptoms that you hear about in heroin uh, withdrawals, but I still did have. I, I felt like a weak little kid, and I wasn't sleeping well. Um, and unfortunately, the doctor told me, hey, go ahead, use marijuana. And marijuana became a great tool for me in those first, uh, you know, weeks or months of of not using heroin. And But one day I, I was feeling feeling a craving. Maybe I was mad at my girlfriend or something. And I, I, I was like, I'm going to use heroin. And I and I called up my dealer. And I, like, I went out in this corner like I was going to meet him and get, make the phone call. And when he picked up the phone, the most bizarre thing happened. And instead of me asking him to meet me, I told him I'd come back from the ibogaine and it worked. And if he ever wanted to do ibogaine, I would help him out. <laughs> and and that was the it's a weird a weird thing that happened. Um, in truth, I probably did do heroin maybe three or four more times over the course of the next three years, and that was actually very empowering for me because I realized that I didn't like it and that I had power over it. It didn't have power over me, so I didn't didn't like it. Got up the next day, I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, when you did it again in these three or four times, did you shoot it or did you smoke it? I shot it. Okay, thank you. But I, I want to put a caveat out there. And I'm, I'm not familiar with the current clinics, but we did have people die at our clinic. And ibogaine does have a very real mortality rate. People die on it, that, uh, mostly for contraindications, but I'm not certain how well we understand those contraindications. And I definitely don't advocate for anyone to take ibogaine um, on their own, without seeing, you know, without medical supervision. If you are somebody that's looking to do ibogaine, I would definitely investigate the clinic that's going to give it to you. I'd investigate that they actually have a doctor on site, a crash cart uh, that they're going to do real tests on you. I personally wouldn't trust a uh, you know quote shaman who's going around offering iboga to people um, without you know having that major concern that people in Africa, they I, people take iboga and they die. Uh, they used to say, you know, the story that got back to me, at least, is when people die on iboga in Africa, they claim that they, you know, they went to the other world and chose not to come back. But I think that that's a, um, an easy way to explain something you can't explain. Maybe they had a heart attack or interacted with their physiology the wrong way. So I do, I'm a big fan of the um, combination of the psychedelic uh, to to you know give somebody that like kick in the head they might need to to look at their life and and overcome their addiction um, combined with something that would alleviate the pain or withdraws. Um, I have some theories on what that could be. Uh, nobody's tested those theories. Like for I I imagine why not um, you know give some a bunch of ketamine for several days while they go through withdrawals because it's quite dissociating and it's a painkiller. And then when they come out of the ketamine, give them a big heroic dose of LSD, and uh, and, and maybe that would achieve a very similar effect um, as ibogaine did for me. But I do think that the the psychedelic component was important to help me look at myself, and getting off the heroin without having major withdrawals was important. But I am worried about the very real mortality issues related to uh, I detox fifteen hundred people at Wilbur Hot Springs in Northern California in a 10-year period from 1980 to 1989, 
A significant percentage of them were heroin addicts. The three things mostly I detox people from were cocaine, heroin, and alcohol. I use the hot mineral water, the natural hot medicine water, uh, you know, to soothe uh, the people who did have withdrawal. What I found, you know, with a sizable uh, number of, of, of patients is that some people have serious withdrawal, meaning headaches, colds, fatigue. Others had almost nothing. And all of them was soothed enough by the hot mineral water that I did not have to hospitalize a patient, nor did I have to give one of them any kind of other medicine to make them feel better. And this was a, a, during a you know, five-day period uh, isolated in the mountains where the hot springs were. So I, I am not a big-time uh, worrier about the withdrawal. I think social model withdrawal, where you sit with a person for a weekend, also works. You know, people, you know, cry and scream, I think, a lot because they were influenced by movies which show people withdrawing from heroin and doing, you know, like going crazy and looking weird and all kinds of stuff. I did not find such severity. As I said, the worst I ran into were a lot of fatigue, headaches, big time headaches, bony, sometimes a funny feeling in the bones and stuff like but nothing that, that you can't deal with or you couldn't deal with. So I think there's some there's too there's been a lot of hype on what how bad it's going to be. I like your idea of ketamine mixed with LSD. I interviewed uh, uh, Dave Nichols, the foremost expert on LSD, perhaps in the planet. He assured me that no one has ever died from LSD that is on record, even with people taking ridiculously large amounts, sometimes by accident. So we've got a big time one. You know, it's an, it's in a cl- class close to ibogaine. Or no, it doesn't last 24 hours. So I like your idea. We do need more experimentation with this. It would help a lot of people. Yeah, I, I wish we were in a world already where LSD were uh, legal and you could be offering LSD to your uh, heroin patients uh, in the hot springs. I, I, that would be wonderful. There would be no, nothing short of wonderful. Yeah, we're not going to see that for a long time because we're still fighting the 60s reputation and all the media hype about LSD. To, yeah, as it's, I, it's, uh, it's too bad. I mean, I'm glad we're decriminalizing, you know, the natural plant medicine. I put my hands in air quotes for people listening. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the LSD is uh, a wonderful psychedelic. And there's a bunch of others that also should be legal and available. So what next, Randy? You, you want to talk about uh, DSW? Sure. I, I'm not, I have never really acted as their spokesperson. I work behind the scenes for decriminalized sex work. Um, but I, what I want to know I is... I certainly uh, learned a lot, so I'd be happy to discuss it. Well, here's part of why. I'd like to know what attracted you to go to work for that particular organization. Well, you know, as a, as a civil libertarian, uh, it was a really clear uh, path between wanting to legalize drugs and decriminalize sex work. I, you know, I just simply believe that nobody should be put into, a, into jail or arrested or fined for engaging in voluntary activity between adults. So, um, and it became very clear to me that, you know, we're, we're, we're doing it wrong. The way we're treating sex work, um, the way we've conflated sex work with human trafficking. um, as I got to meet, uh, sex workers and buyers of sex workers, um, you know, it's just, you know, it's just like prohibition. It's never going to work. We're not making it safer for people engaged in it. And, um, you know, it's a liberty that people should be allowed to have. So what, what we've done is we've made... Activity between two sober, consenting adults illegal, and we've made 
ingesting vegetables in the privacy of one's own home illegal. It's asinine, right? We're going to look back at like our, our great-grandchildren or, you know, we read about this in the history books. And they'll go, think about us just like we think about the Middle Ages when they put people on racks, you know, and whatever else they did terrible in the Middle Ages. And we're going through it now. We're doing it by having such a big printed population, trying to control people's activities uh, through through force and, and law. And uh, it's, it's dumb. Through force and law and, and jail and incarceration. In my time, Randy, a man named Ralph Gleason in New York went to prison for publishing his magazine, which had on the cover a black hand holding hands, shaking hands with a white hand. And he, w- he went to prison for that. Crazy. And not too long after that, I was teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where a student named John Sinclair got 10 years in prison for two marijuana joints and upended his entire college career. It was well, a famous is, uh, case. I didn't know we had this in common. I grew up in Ann Arbor and uh, I got to meet John Sinclair and I attended one of his uh, you know, post-freedom uh, rallies. Uh, so, really? Yeah, back when I was in high school. Yeah. And are you still in touch with him? Oh, no, no, I have. I, I don't actually know him. I, I met him. You know, this oh, was, yeah, I see. Yeah. This, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to get in touch with him. I'm going to get in touch with him and uh, and interview him on this program. That'd be great. He has, he has quite a story. Yes, it is quite a story. So getting back to, to, to decriminalize, when, when I started investigating and uh, researching, really, the criminalization of sex work, the thing that jumped out at me is that from a certain perspective, criminalizing sex work is just one more way we have of suppressing women, Absolutely. of the many ways that we suppress women. Yeah, let me, I'll jump in. Like, one of the things that we uh, talk about at DSW, uh, there's a, this, uh, you know, uh, what they call a Baptist and bootlegger alignment between uh, prohibitionists and, and we call them carceral feminists. Uh, these are feminists who are so um, disgusted by women selling sex that they think that they should be locked up. And there's, uh, rather than accepting that, you know, a woman has, a, you know, has agency and she can choose to do what she wants with her own body. Um, they, they just see it like if a woman's selling sex, she must be being, you know, misused by a man. And of course there's are those cases and there's a lot of, a lot of ugliness in the sex trade by all means. Um, but the way to get, to deal with the ugliness is to bring it out of the shadows and to decriminalize it. And I guess one take home I would like to give to your listeners is that there's a difference between decriminalizing and legalizing. And uh, even though I consider myself quite, um, you know, a, a little L libertarian on most things, with drugs, I think we should legalize them because I think that drugs, drugs uh, can be inherently dangerous and they should be regulated. And we want to know that. Uh, I want to know, I want to go to the store. I want to buy my drug and know my drug is the drug you're selling me, not some adulterated drug. Whereas with sex, and that's that, and that, by the way, just and that's legalization. Drugs would right. be legal. The gov, they would, they would be protected, and you would buy exactly what you want to buy, and know that you're safe and you're not getting adulterants when you buy it. Right. With sex work, we want to decriminalize it, and the reason is that if you only legalized it, meaning that it could only be sold. Uh, you know, in a licensed brothel, uh, 
most of the population is not going to buy it in that licensed brothel. And the people who are most harmed by the uh, prohibition of sex work are the, uh, you know, minority marginalized people. And they're not going to figure out how to get, they're, they're not going to be invited to work in the brothel. And the brothel is going to be owned by, you know, some corporate structure. And it's going to be some limited. So and we can look at, I mean, it's a good thing they have this option in Nevada, but th there's a, more people are arrested for prostitution in Nevada than, you know, per capita than anywhere else. And everybody thinks that it's legal in Nevada. It's only legal at a handful of brothels in these tiny little, uh, in counties with very small populations. And only a few actual, you know, legal sex workers exist. So the other, you know, many tens of thousands of sex workers in, you know, mostly in Las Vegas or Reno are working illegally. Las Vegas itself is not a place where prostitution is legal? No, no, it's not legal there. Oh. Yeah, you have to go to a county that has um, like a sparse population in order to be allowed to have a brothel. So if you ever take a drive through Nevada, you'll find um, that you know, like, you, you cross the border from, from Utah or from California and or wherever and you'll see these kind of janky looking little places that happen to be a brothel. Um, and that's because they're in a, in a sparsely sparse county. Okay, well, take me further why legalization you, you, you do not advocate because for from my perspective, and I could have this wrong, I'm sure, I, as, a, as a, a doctor of clinical psychology, I could go work in a clinic, which is like a brothel, you know, a whole bunch of people selling themselves, only we're selling our souls instead of our bodies. And, but I can also get a, same, a license and, private inde and practice independently. So if it was legal... Couldn't just anybody apply for a license and, and say, I'm setting up shop and, and, and now I'm legal? Sure. So what's, I what's, don't, what's the I problem mean, with that? Okay. I think we would be okay I with mean, a, le a legal model on top of a decriminalized model, right? So if um, we don't want to arrest the marginalized person who doesn't have the wherewithal, the capacity, whatever it is in their life um, to go through that process of getting licensure. I would think one of the uh, women who, uh, you know, helped run the DSW has this really great um, way, way to talk about this. She's like, think about the nanny. You don't have to get licensed to be a nanny. Anybody can hire a nanny. Um, now, somebody could say, I went to school for early childhood psychology and, I, you know, I've got certif certifications and therefore, you know, you should choose me over somebody else. But nobody goes into a family's house and say, you're not allowed to have that because they're not licensed. And we should treat sex work in the same sort of way. Um, if, if a person chooses to sell sex um, you know, or exchange it for anything of value, that's their individual choice. And there's no reason for us to be involved in that. We don't want to arrest that person. And at the same time, if we want to say, look, we don't want this on the streets downtown. We'd rather have a brothel over here. And if you're going to run a brothel, we do want to be, to be licensed and regulated. We want to make sure that, you know, the women or, or persons inside of this uh, brothel are protected. So we're going to, you know, do certain things uh, to make it safe for them. And, and that's a, a legal model on top of a decriminalized model. And this is similar to drugs too, right? Like we don't want to arrest you for having um, cocaine or adulterated cocaine on you. We want to stop you from selling adulterated cocaine to somebody else, right? That's... um. Yeah, you know, the the so first we decriminalize and then we legalize or we do it at the same time. The the best uh model of, of this for sex work is it's country New Zealand. Uh 
the entire country decriminalized sex work in 2003. Uh, since then, uh, you know, street prostitution has gone down. There's not much of it. It still exists, but there's not much. Uh, Why? Why? Um, because the women have a safe place to work, or the or the people have a safe place to work. They can work inside their homes. They're not, you know, they can. There's ways for them to advertise safely. They don't. Oh, you're saying okay. I was unclear. You're not saying the number of sex workers has decreased. You're saying the number of sex workers working walking the streets has decreased. Their place of work has changed. And and what also has happened is human trafficking has gone down. Um, It's just a a not human trafficking is is defined as. When you uh, you know coerce somebody into providing sex through force or fraud or coercion, right, right, right. Um, so you know if you if you take somebody's passport and make them sell sex, that's human trafficking. Right? Yes. If you steal their money, it's human trafficking. If it's a minor, it's always human trafficking according yes. to our laws, right? So you know, once they decriminalized it, like all these things that happened in the black market, you know, went away. Think, think about it. a person that wants to buy sex doesn't really want to buy it from somebody that's being human trafficked. It's not. It's not a. Um, you know, like you, you you would like to buy it from somebody who's voluntarily selling it to you. But when you're forced to buy it on the black market, you're also committing a crime. So you walk into a situation, you have a hunch that somebody's human trafficked. Um, you're in a pickle. Do you choose to go to the police and say, I, I, I was trying to buy sex from somebody that's being human trafficked? Or do you keep your mouth shut and disappear? And the people who are most likely to identify who's human trafficked are other sex workers. They, they can see it. They're on the streets with them or at the brothel or whatever. Like, this person's not here voluntarily. And they could go and help them out, but they can't because they're doing something illegal. So we've just created this um, you know, terrible incentive structure that uh, keeps marginalized people marginalized. The only part of your argument or statement that I resonate to with regard to the advantage of decrim over full legalization is that it makes it possible for those who are unable for some reason to get a license to make a living by practicing because they're not going to get arrested for not having a license since it's a decrim situation. But I think that's a slippery slope because... How many other places where we offer licenses do we want to also let people do the exact same activity without a license, knowing that they won't get in any trouble for it? I sure as hell wouldn't want that in dentistry. I sure wouldn't want yeah, it in well, my profession. Yeah, but but in your, I mean, you're 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 a licensed clinical psychologist, right? I mean, correct. There there are certainly coaches out there who are not licensed and tons and, tons. Right? And, and we're not arresting them and stopping them from being coaches. Um, and, and we're letting the consumer choose, do I feel like I want a coach or do I need a psychologist? And I, I would say we over-license things. You know, like people can't, like it's harder to, in, in some states to um, become a barber you know, or a hairstylist to get a license than it is, or to become a massage therapist than it is to do other, you know, um, mm-hmm. other things that, you know, and, and it, it, it creates a, a structure that, prevents people from getting professions yeah. uh, and and i you know i i'm for less laws i'm for you know like i uh, was about to say there's a strong argument the decrim what it does is it, it at least it reduces some of the laws which we have laws on everything including what you and i agreed on earlier we have laws about what you can eat in your own house 
that I find that the most offensive at all, that if somebody, some government's going to tell me what I can eat in my own home. I mean, that's uh, that, that's over the top. That's worth fighting for. Yeah. So I, I just put them on the same continuum, um, you know, trying yeah. to allow adults to do adult things. And, and I think that we can, you know, um, I believe that the, uh, you know, I'm, I have more faith in the free market and in and, and individual choice and people to say, I want a psychologist today and not a coach, or I want a sex worker that I know has been, uh, you know, is, is working at a licensed brothel. And I know that they have certain practices versus somebody else. Um, and the decriminalizing of it, you know, accepts the reality. I mean, some people, you know, they're not full-time sex workers, but they, they move in and out of it. And, and, and once in a while, they're going to sell some sex. And we they, they shouldn't be outlawed for doing that. And they shouldn't have to get a license to do it. Unquestionably. And I think if I was a female and I needed some money uh, and I did, and, in a rush or for some other reason, and I could get paid for having sex with somebody, I would hope that I would do it. Well, you know, men do it too, just to... Yeah, <laughs> to, to yeah, we do. Yeah. Right. But at, at six foot five and 200 pounds, I don't know if I... I suppose there was somebody for somebody, for everybody, but I don't think I have... So... Uh, you're still with uh, the organization Decriminalized Sex Work, no, correct? No, I, I, I um, you know, I, oh. I would, ended with them back in last last summer. So, oh, um, you did? Yeah, yeah. My, uh, you know, I, I, I had a great time with them. I think very highly of them. Uh, you know, their their funding changed, and my role ended. Uh, um, you know, it's how the markets worked. So, um, I, I was there longer than I expected. Uh, they've they've done great work. Um, you know, we were able to. Um, you know, change specific laws. Uh, like there's a law in New York that's called the walking watch. We, we call it the walking while tran walking while trans law ban, which basically told police that you're allowed to arrest somebody for, um, uh, if you suspect them of, if they look like a prostitute, you can arrest them for loitering, uh, for, for the intent to be a prostitute. And basically it's just a way for the police to say, Oh, we see, um, you know, some, you know, black trans person dressed skimpy over here. We're going to go arrest them and arrest them. And uh, we were able to get rid of that law in New York. We were able to uh, oh, take the uh, prostitution law off the books in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and there's a bunch of other, you know, the, the strategy for DSW is similar to the strategy for marijuana, where, you know, first we legalized medical marijuana and then we got to legalize marijuana. And with sex work, it's similar. First, we just need to, you know, bring to the consciousness that, you know, uh, Sex workers are harmed by these laws, uh, and we and what can we do to reduce that harm, and how can we eventually decriminalize it? And I think we're in a good space. I, you know, we're farther ahead with sex work than we were with um, marijuana. I have helped run the polls, or you know, hire the pollsters that research this stuff. And at a national level, it's something like forty-eight percent of Americans think that we should decriminalize sex work. So, uh, no offense to your generation. But uh, hopefully, uh, as some of you guys are no longer around, uh, that's going to tip over to the 50% and we'll be able to get rid of these dumb laws. My generation of dinosaurs, no question about it. I mean, I, it's, it's, we don't even want to go into that topic. Uh, so you, you had some time with MAPS, to your credit. You had some time with this, uh, the organization Decriminalized Sex Work. You all can look that up on Google and learn more. And I interviewed Andrea Ariela Moskowitz from the Decriminalized Sex Work Organization recently. It was a great interview. Hi, Ariella. Um, 
What's on your radar screen nowadays, Randy? Well, yeah, yeah, as I'm I'm excited about this thing I'm doing with maps in June. I I like getting outside, so I live here on a ski mountain. Um, Last year, I went and uh, did a 24-day trip down the Grand Canyon, and I I want to share these outdoor adventures with other people. So that's why I'm doing a a pre- and post-conference adventures. One's a camping event that's modestly priced for about 50 people, all-inclusive, to come up from Denver to go camping ahead of the conference, and one's a more high-end uh, luxury lodge affair after the conference, meant to uh, raise more money for maps. And so, then to also- tell us, to, to give us just yeah. a couple of sentences okay. about what's going to happen at each of the two events. Sure. So, um, yeah, we're going to have whitewater rafting, uh, mountain biking, hiking, uh, you know, yoga home-cooked meals outside for the uh, camping and luxury, uh, you know, cuisine inside of the lodge. Um, you know, we've uh, we've decriminalized nature here in uh, in, Cal- in Colorado, so uh, there's optional group journeys um, to the extent allowed under Proposition 122. And, um, you know, for, for the lodge, we might do some horseback riding, and, uh, and then we're also just going to be together with uh, really uh, special people. So we'll do some, uh, you know, fireside talks and storytelling, um, and I think that anybody that comes to one of these events, is, it's going to be the time of their life. And uh, it'll be a rich experience, um, both uh, in play and emotion and in connecting with others. Send me a couple of links to those two events and I'll pass them around. Yeah. If people are listening, want to memorize it, it's, uh, it's Psychedelic Science 23. So PS23CO, CO for Colorado, PS23CO.com. And I'll uh, I'll pass it back to you uh, offline as well. Um, PS23CO.com, folks. And then the other project I'm working on is a, is a, I, I joined a friend of mine from my days at Students for Central Drug Policy. He's an engineer and the founder of Prisms AI. And we're building a uh, platform to interface with AI in a private manner. So currently, if, if you've played with any of the AI, the chat GPT-3 is very popular right now, mid-journey, stable diffusion. Um, all of those things are, um, as you interface with them, they're, they, they know who you are and, and, and you're feeding the machine and you're being tracked. And we're building a platform that will allow you to interface with the utility of AI without being tracked. So think like the um, DuckDuckGo or the Brave browser of AI. Terrific. Oh, keep me posted. I want to sign right up for that. Yeah, well, well we're in the beta test, so I'll send you one over and have, see how you play with it. And... Last but not least, we'll take a couple of minutes. Seasteading. Talk to yeah, us about fun. your experience. Yeah, please tell us about your experience with seasteading. Well, God, and you tell know, us, I, I, tell everybody, remind everybody what seasteading yeah. is. And, and th- so you think seasteading, think of the word, like uh, the ocean. So we were, uh, we're, we're a think tank that was trying to build or is trying to build new societies so people can live under new governments at sea. And it started as a... Uh, yeah, as a think tank of the project uh, in California uh, by my friend and former boss, Patrick Friedman. Um, he came up with this idea at Burning Man where he walked around and realized, you know, if uh, every, you, you, if you can pick up and drive your RV across town, then, you know, no government can own you. Uh, and if we went out to sea, 12 miles out to sea, you could be in international waters and we could experiment with new governments. Um, so, uh, you know, I was founded, I think, in like 2008. I joined in 2011. I was with the organization till 1718. Um, you know, we, we went through several iterations. My my uh, big attempt uh, was 
to try to build a special economic zone uh, in the territorial waters of French Polynesia. Um, we, I signed a memorandum of understanding with the president there. And the, the idea was we could go prototype seasteads in one of their lagoons um, and get some favorable um, legal status uh, to make it unique enough to attract the audience that likes seasteading. Um, unfortunately, the project didn't work out under my uh, tenure. Uh, we, we, I, there's some naive things I we did in terms of it, thinking that the uh, the local French Polynesians would just accept us being there, and, and quite quickly they uh, they rejected our our presence. So uh, you know the, the project. Did you actually build a platform of some form? Did you get to I, that no, stage no, we or not? Got, we we raised money. We uh, we designed. We we did studies. Uh, you know, we, we had a startup company. We, I moved to Tahiti for three months, and uh, in that time, uh, yeah, the, as the news cycle went on, the um, the government had distanced themselves from us because there was a a, a local pushback. They they thought we were going to come and steal their fish and pull their waters, um, and that wasn't our intentions. Um, it's a shame. I, you know, if I I think that uh, if you were going to do something. Like, like I want to do, you'd have to go down there and, and, and drink kava with them for 10 years before you uh, chose to do what I attempted to do. Right. Get to know the people. Well, it couldn't have been too terrible being in Tahiti for three months. It's a, it's a lovely island. It's a lovely nation. Um, you know, it's a special place in the world. Great people. Um, you know, I, I don't begrudge them. I, I understand they're, they, they, they were traumatized from being colonized by the French. Um, you know, the world's changing rapidly and a bunch of, uh, Americans and other international people coming to their boat, you know, to their land, saying they wanted to build this crazy futuristic thing. Um, I can see how come they just didn't take it. Uh, but I met the neatest people, including Charlie, Charlie Deister, producer. Yes, um, through seasteading, uh, it opened my eyes to. Um, it, it helped me come out of a shell where I, you know, grew up with one uh, political leaning and thought that anybody that wasn't my political leaning was evil. And I learned that um, people are evil in most cases, like the introduction you said today, that uh, they just have different opinions, uh, they have different values, and it's better for us to try to find our common ground than it is to focus on our differences. That's a perfect place to end the interview that was so beautifully said, Randy. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Richard. I appreciate it. Uh, We're going to do one more little thing before we go. We're going to take a pause. This is one of those times we're going to make believe the interview is over. And now you're walking in the other room to hang out with your family and friends or whoever or whatever you're going to do. And then sometimes when we do that, we think of something and we say, oh, darn, I wish I would have said that during the interview. So right now, we're going to take a pause. I'm going to throw in a little commercial, and that'll give you a time to think, is there any, oh, darn, I wish I would have said that. So while Randy's doing that, please let me remind you to go to our uh, website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Check out the archives. Subscribe, if you will. We'd like that. Check out my recent books, Psychedelic Medicine and Psychedelic Wisdom, and pass the information along to others. Thanks. Back to Randy. Let's see what he has to say. I don't know. I'll tell you, Richard, I, it's, been, it's been fun. I, I read the book, um, and uh, actually, I listened to an audio tape, to be honest with you. Um, you don't notice I've been in your house before when I was working for Maps. We had a a dinner uh, that you at allowed in t- Tiburon when you were living in Santa Cruz. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But you looked very different. I don't think we actually met. I don't think you were there. I think we hosted it while you were up at Wilbur. 
Oh, um, really? I thought yeah. I met you at the house sometime. Okay. If we did, I'm sorry. Forgive me for forgetting. Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Um, Same here. And uh, gosh, I mean, I think you're doing great work in the world from what I see. I think I look forward to seeing you in Denver. And I'm just going to have to have some regret about this thing that I can't remember. But I did say the things I knew I wanted to get out. So I got those. That's things. good. That's great. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for being with us on today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please check in with us again next week. We're going to have another wonderful program. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness.